Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Hi, my name's Toby Young, and I'm one of uh, Quillette's London-based editors. Uh, Today, I'm talking to Joel Kotkin. Uh, He is the Presidential Fellow in Urban Futures at Chapman University and Executive Director of the Urban Reform Institute. His new book, The Coming of Neo-Feudalism, is now out from Encounter. And uh, he is uh, a regular contributor to Quillette and uh, has just written a piece um, about the pandemic and the pandemonium um, that has followed uh, the easing of lockdown restrictions, at least in some American states. Uh, Joel, thank you very much for talking to Quillette. It's my pleasure. So, um, first of all, do you want to talk a little bit about what you think the lasting consequences of the pandemic are likely to be before we go on to talk about the civil unrest? Well, and I think, you know, the two as as, uh, Quillette actually... Uh, had a very, I thought it was a very clever title. Um, uh, you know, I think that that the the two things are related. But you know what what these uh, events have been or uh, will be are accelerating trends that were already there. We already were seeing in the last five years or so a growing movement um, here in the United States for sure, and to some extent in other countries of people essentially beginning to move out of the urban core um, areas and move to suburbs and um, in the United States, in particular, smaller cities. Similar things have been seen in some other parts of the world. But basically, the urban centers, um, which had had a tremendous uh, revival, certainly in certain parts of those centers, um, I think has, uh, I think that sort of slowed there, the the and the pandemic has made it difficult. Just the very idea, for instance, of social distancing is very, very difficult to implement in a crowded city where people take the subway and are um, are in crowded offices. And and of course, um, one of the the uh, worst parts of this has been that the um, that poor neighborhoods have been disproportionately hit by this. Um, even though in many cases the original infection may have been uh, may have been brought by sort of jet-setting business people and tourists, the um, it, the worst effects have been overwhelmingly in crowded areas of people who are transit dependent, who are involved in people serving businesses. You know they can't retreat behind a computer. So the 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 results of the pa- of, of the pandemic have been one. An acceleration of uh, home-based work, which is again another thing that will drive people to uh, different locations, um, and also you know they'll want more space at home. Um, the second thing it's done is it's wiped out a huge amount of the entrepreneurial um, 
a community in um, in a lot of the inner city areas and and in many of the most affected states. I mean, you've got businesses that are, and I've been doing interviews on this. Um, you have businesses that have been closed for three, four months. Some of them may not open till September or October. If if that happens, very few of these small businesses will survive, and 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 that that will mean that more and more neighborhoods, the ownership of property will be concentrated, as I suggest in the feudal thesis, in in fewer and fewer uh, terms. The 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 current disorders are just going to. Uh, accelerate this, you know, for all the, you know, sort of um, the tut-tutting and the and 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 the expressions of sympathy um, for the protests, which are certainly uh, um, I'm sympathetic to the protests themselves, but the but the almost wink nod the up towards the violence um, is the kind of thing that's going to drive middle class families out of cities. Um, you know, when you have the Attorney General of uh, Massachusetts, for instance, now saying that, oh, well, it's good to have these burnings and fires because that's how forests grow, you know, and you're sitting there saying, well, I'm glad it's not your business that that that, uh, that was burned to the ground. It's not your neighborhood. Um, I was reading from one of the African-American preachers in, in Chicago. It, you know, his neighborhood is now doesn't have a drugstore, now doesn't have a grocery store. You know, you know this sort of notion um, that has now gotten um, deeply embedded in, in progressive politics, which dominate the big cities, that even violence is okay, homelessness is okay, avoid, not petty theft is okay. This has been a cascade um, that has now really um, gotten full fruit. And of course, I have to say, a lot of the blame is, is should be laid at the feet of the media and academia. You sound um, quite gloomy about um, the prospects for inner cities. Uh, you say that um, the pandemic has exacerbated a trend, that a lot of um, retail businesses, uh, hospitality businesses in the inner city uh, are going to struggle to reopen, if at all. Uh, it's going to uh, mean uh, middle-class flight to suburban areas, smaller cities. Um, that sounds like a fairly bleak prognosis. Um, won't the you know won't market forces mean that if there is a market for things like the drugstore in the Chicago preacher's neighborhood, uh, that they will in due course reopen? Uh, that wh- Why should we assume that uh, even though these businesses, the economy within inner cities is, is going to take a, a big hit, that it won't in, in due course recover? Well, I think that there's some truth in the fact that, for instance, um, if, let's say, urban real estate prices drop, um, I think that that may um, convince some people uh, that they'll stay. I mean, my point is, I think we are going to have to be prepared for a a sort of shift in the inner cities. And by the way, not necessarily for the worst, but it will be different. For instance, if we look at the history of, of the early 20th century, um, cities like London, New York, um, Paris, um, they reached their peak population. They had they were 
very, very susceptible to pandemics, like you know, the Spanish flu of 1918, um, cholera, typhus, you know, all sorts of problems. Um, they, what they did was they depopulated the inner city. So, for instance, um, Manhattan uh, had 2.4 million people in 1920, had 1.5 million people in 1950. In 1950, New York was the capital of the world in a way that probably no other city will ever be again. Um, I mean, it was just complete global dominance from one city. So it wasn't like New York declined. What happened was people moved. Similar things happened in London, uh, the inner city of London, the inner city of Paris. And I think what's happened is we sort of got back into this, you know, higher densities, and now we're seeing the, you know, sort of the negatives of that higher density. And so I think you will see these the cities find a new equilibrium. That what they have to realize is it's not doubling down on what they already have done, but you know, finding a way to, for instance, to make cities less transit dependent, to make them. Um, more family friendly to be, uh, and again to be somewhat less dense. You know, I I think also there will be a reinvention of the role of the central city. Many of the jobs that are there now, um, particularly the jobs that can be replaced by uh, by telecommuting, um, really don't have to be there. Um, you know, we're all learning uh, how much we really can function can function, particularly about that one third of the economy that can can work remotely. Um, I, I think that 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 you you really have to see um, that process as making it possible for more and more people who have worked in traditional um, industries like uh, finance and media um, now are able to disperse. So I think that that there's that, you know that's going to happen. What's going to remain, and I think H. G. Wells uh, pointed this out about 120 years ago is that what you're going to have is you're going to have uh, a inner city which is really going to be attractive to people without children to to young people who you know in their early in their early 20s i think they're going to keep coming um and people who are wealthy enough to live in an urban environment but not be overly crowded and so you know you're going to have this sort of idea of uh, wells talked about a place of concourse and rendezvous uh, a place that we'll maybe go to. We may not live there, but we go there occasionally for an event, or we go there uh, to, to meet people that we work with. But it won't be the center of everything. It, it won't be, I think you know, work will be more dispersed, and people will be more dispersed. But I think that's sort of the key to making the inner cities more uh, affordable and also more livable. What you're saying um, reminds me a bit of um, some of the things that uh, the French geographer Christophe Guillet, I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce oh, it. Yeah, he's great. Yeah, so he wrote this book, um, The Peripheral France, in which he talked about um, this uh, trend whereby large, there were these kind of um, half a dozen or so large urban centres which generate most of the wealth of the country, and they're characterised by very few middle-class people, very few um, uh, middle-class families, but these large uh, migrant populations uh, predominantly um, doing poorly paid, precarious jobs in the service sector and um, very rich international 
bankers, media pangendrums, uh, living alongside them cheek by jowl with a share, shared political values up to a point, a belief in globalization, pro-immigration, liberal and so forth. Um, uh, but what's been happening in America's cities suggests that the inequality that characterizes these modern metropolises um, can't be sustained in the long run, that eventually tensions between these two groups are going to uh, uh, blow up. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's exactly right. One of the big the things that we've noticed that was very different in these riots, you know, compared, let's say, I, you know, I have to admit I'm old enough to have covered, well, covered the 92 riots, and actually I can even go back and at least vaguely recall the ones in the late 60s. But, you know, basically what's very different now is in the past, you know, you would have an incident, there would be a sort of spontaneous um, reaction, you know, whether it was the Watts riots of 65 or the 92 L.A. riots or the riots after Dr. King was killed. Those um, kind of, like, it just happened. It was spontaneous. And then, you know, at, at some points, you know, the the sort of gang and criminal elements began to take take a, a role. But these were restricted pretty well into the inner city. And you very rarely saw the core parts of the, of, of if you want to call it, the, you, know, the, you know, the sort of glamour zone um, of, of, of the urban areas that you're describing. They, they were not hit. What's really interesting about these is that from the very beginning, Black Lives Matter, and then to some extent, the, and of course more dangerously, the Antifa and, you know, and, uh, and the gangs all said, well, you know, we don't, no, yes, we'll trash the Walgreens, let's say, in south, uh, sh- south side of Chicago, but they went, they went almost immediately into um, the, the sort of Gold Coast areas of Chicago, and, you know, the most beautiful of all the urban regions in the world. Um, they w- they went after uh, Macy's, on time, uh, you know, uh, um, in, um, in in Manhattan. You know, and if you're a kid growing up with w- watching the, the Christmas windows at Macy's, it, it's quite shocking. Um, as a native New Yorker myself, um, and then and then you saw here the tax on Beverly Hills. So, I think what's happened is that this 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 gap has been very very profound and and the resentment and I wrote about this in, in, in neo feudalism the resentment of the inner city residents um, let's say on the south side of Chicago to all these yuppies who are getting you know tax breaks there the city is you know crowing about them meanwhile their neighborhoods are, de- are, are being destroyed so that's part of it the other part of it and and I'm just finishing some work on this right now is this development of this kind of white, you know, I guess you could almost call them an underclass, but kind of a group of young white people who, many of them college-educated, but poorly uh, poorly employed, um, have, uh, you know, take jobs that don't pay very well, you know, they're Uber drivers or they're working at Starbucks or whatever, um, and have also been inculcated in the universities with very radical ideology, you know, postmodernist kind of, you know, bastardized Marxism, as I would see it. Um, and so you release that force on the streets now, um, which we didn't see before. I mean, there were always, you know, socialist workers, party, you know, people hanging out around these riots in the past, but 
nothing like now. I mean, you you look at some of the the attacks on stores, and and you know, very often the, at least some of the perpetrators are, are white. And in many cases, from what I'm reading and hearing from my friends around the country, there are many African Americans, for instance, who you know support the protest, but you know don't think burning down the Walgreens in the South Side of Chicago is a revolutionary act. It's interesting the role of grievance studies departments at universities and uh, their promotion of, um, you know, postmodernist neo-Marxism, um, and whether that whether the role that that's played, um, often you know, revolutionary moments uh, in the history of Europe uh, over the past uh, hundred years plus have coincided with gluts of. Um, unemployed university graduates um, uh, without many opportunities, uh, feeling frustrated in poorly paying jobs, in some cases living with their parents beyond the age they want to. And that creates a kind of uh, a, a, a combustible climate. Um, uh, and they often end up leading kind of revolutionary movements. Um, do you think that's what we're beginning to see that in contemporary America? Or do you think a lot of that political energy will now be channeled into trying to get Joe Biden elected and it'll be you know, contained within the democratic political process? Well, I think that there'll be certainly there'll be a sense of relief to get rid of Trump. And, you know, uh, I mean, I think these riots may be, the, you know, if the pandemic didn't kill Trump, uh, the riots will. And that's because, you know, in, in times like this, most Americans just want to see it stop. And they, they don't relish the sort of bellicose rhetoric. And, you know, they they would really like somebody, you know, it could have been, you know, George, you know, George Bush, or it could have been um, Barack Obama, but, uh, but somebody who would get or, or Bill Clinton, you know, somebody would get up and sort of say something soothing. So I think there'll be that. But the demands of the left wing of the Democratic Party are almost insatiable, and they, and I think they'll be. Um, I, I I don't think that this kind of radicalization will stop. Plus, I don't think I think the the phenomena that you discuss, you know, which is by the way, uh, if you look, read the history of Latin America, this is almost always their situation. Large numbers of educated young people who, of course, may have gotten their education in something completely uh, uh, with no market value at all. Um, but nevertheless, they, they come in, they, you know, their parents went to college, they had successful lives, they're not having them. The millennial generation and disease, are, um, the, the generation, uh, the next generation, um, have, you know, pretty, you know, have some pretty bad uh, prospects ahead of them in the immediate future. And so... So I think you're going to see this growth, and, and, and there's certainly no change in the mood of academia or the media. I've, I have been, frankly, astounded by some of the accounts. I mean, you know, Slate, Vox, mm. um, uh, even the New York Times. You know, essentially, you know, one, I think it was Slate where they, where they wrote, well, it was, you know, burning down the police station's okay because it's, it, you know, it's, it's how you get change. I mean, this notion that that burning stuff down is going to change, you know, lead to change is, is, is of course, it's the exact opposite. It's going to happen. You know, the the uh, you know people will leave the, the inner cities. They won't want to invest in them, and um, and fundamentally, eventually, the Americans, like most people, will 
will vote for order. I mean, that's basically what, what happens in these situations and, and always happens. Um, you know, you think about, for instance, some of the very uh, militant actions done by unions that helped lead to Margaret Thatcher. Um, you look at the uh, the free speech riots in, in, in Berkeley in 64 that led in many ways, and then the, the Watts riots, that led eventually to... Uh, um, to Ronald Reagan, um, the disturbances of the, of the late '60s certainly didn't hurt uh, Richard Nixon. So I'm, I'm, I think there will be some unintended consequences here. But I do think that this radical trend that you're describing um, is so embedded now. And you know, again, I, I just when I when I read like it being, I think it was Rolling Stone was saying, well, if you call this a riot, you're a racist. Well, what am I supposed to call it? You know, what 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 is, what is this? You know the you know the, you know some glorious event. Um, you know, you know, you know, some some great uh, fulfillment of biblical prophecy. I mean, what do you think this is? This this is a riot. When people go and they go into stores, and they rip off stores and they beat up people on the streets who who are defending their property, and they're throwing rocks at cops, and maybe shooting them in some cases. I don't necessarily see where, you know, where that should be, can be called anything but a riot. We've reached the halfway point in this Quillette podcast, and it's time for a short message from Blinkist. If you're the type of person who reads Quillette and listens to the Quillette podcast, you also might be the sort of person who reads a lot of books. But like me, you probably never have enough time to read quite as many as you'd like. And that's where Blinkist comes in. Open the Blinkist app on your phone, tablet, or browser, and suddenly you're able to read or listen to expert 15-minute summaries of popular nonfiction books. For one low price, you get unlimited access to the entire Blinkist library. There are 12 million people using Blinkist. For some users, it's the soundtrack to their daily slog through traffic. Others read Blinkist on the subway. In my case, I listen to Blinkist when I walk my dog, which usually takes about 15 minutes. That's one whole book. Go through the Blinkist catalog and you'll find all sorts of big brain books like Upheaval by Jared Diamond and Sapiens by Yuval Noel Harari. But they've also got those business books you see in airport swivel racks, not to mention the Communist Manifesto by Marx and Engels, and of course, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Quillette. Try it free for seven days, and save 25% off your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, Blinkist.com slash Quillette to start your free seven-day trial at 25% off. And now, back to our podcast. The the um, sort of moral blindness of um, those people in the media um, who are, you know, not merely excusing lawlessness, but um, effectively endorsing it as a kind of legitimate political action. It reminds me in a way of um, the people who crowded into um, uh, the Bernstein's apartment that Tom Wolfe read about in uh, okay. Radical yeah. Chic. Um, yeah. But do, do you think that um, the um, enthusiasm, the eagerness of the educated liberal elite uh, to excuse a lot of the criminality um, that 
for the most part, it's not affecting them in the slightest. Um, do you think that it's that, that that is a new thing? I mean, let, let's just go back to you. You mentioned that um, you covered the um, LA riots in '92 as a journalist, and I think you subsequently wrote a report on them for the Democratic Party. Yeah. Um, is, is, is that is that is that in your experience then a new phenomenon that 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 that, that the rioters have kind of cheerleaders um, in the media and 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 not 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 merely kind of in the fringe media like in publications like The Nation or perhaps even The Village Voice, but you know in the New York Times on CNN that they're essentially excusing this behaviour and saying you know if a police station has to be burned down maybe that's fair enough. I mean, is that new? I think what I think the phenomena of, of radical chic has obviously been with us for a long time, and I think you know you will see, you know you do see that um, you know that phenomena and have seen it, and you know there were, I'll never forget during the '92 riots, you know sympathy with the rioters that are driving around in their fancy cars with, you know with with their you know blonde piggy, you know pigtails and 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 their hats backwards i mean i'll that, that's an image I'll, i will never get out of my head from that 92 period but there wasn't the kind of establishment if you will uh support you didn't have people writing articles in the new york times saying that we should defund the police um you didn't you don't have as widespread um uh, a um, inculcation of of particular political values at the high school level and even below that you have today um you you had countervailing forces you know whether it was the church or the community organization or there was some other uh response um that there's some belief that you needed law and order to, to do anything and um I think that's eroded. Uh, I think it, it's it, you know, yes. We had a radical chic in 1992. You had a radical chic in 19, you know, 68. But but I think that it's far more entrenched and far deeper. And also one other thing is, and look, I think you know the country will be better off you know with almost anyone than Donald Trump. But 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 I do think that the desire to get rid of Trump seems to have removed any constraints about uh, about you know what what's legitimate and what's not and um i think i think the extent is is different i i don't think we we never and and certainly cnn new york times you know uh the, the these kinds of publications you know slate which was owned by the by the former owners of the washington post i see sort of tolerance for certain kinds of criminal behavior that I don't think we, we saw before. Um, and the media itself has become so much a part of the, if you want to say, the progressive narrative and has become, oh, to the point that, that 45, 50% of the population, it doesn't even, nobody believes anything they say, even if they're right. One, one thing that um, astonishes me as someone um, who spent, you know, six or seven years of my life in America and someone who has always been, um, uh, always cherished America and seen America as a kind of, you know, a beacon of light in the world and um, has celebrated the, the values of the founding fathers and believed in the values embedded in the American Constitution is that back when I, you know, I was at Harvard for a year, um, 
that was that was the kind of uh, you know however radical people were however progressive their politics there was this shared belief in the values underpinning uh, america and the american constitution and a shared belief that whatever problems were besetting contemporary america however short it fell of the ideal that that, that, that was fixable it was a perfectible society um right. that 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 seems to have gone and that if 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 someone saying the kinds of things which were absolutely mainstream um, 30 years ago, um, uh, defending American values, defending America, um, claiming that, you know, there was some legitimacy to uh, the presidency, Congress, law, the Constitution. If you say that now, you're thought to be kind of somehow morally deficient. That is in itself almost a far right point of view. And, and, and amongst the kind of educated intelligentsia, unless you think America is a moral aberration, it's abhorrent. Um, it's, a, it's a racist edifice built on suffering and exploitation that needs to be torn down. And it's not, it, it's not fixable. I mean, unless you have that kind of what I would have thought back then was a radically kind of Marxist perspective, um, uh, you're thought to be beyond the pale. I mean, that, that is extraordinary. I, it, well, it is, you know, and of course you have the New York Times engaging in what is one of the great intellectual frauds of, of our time, which yeah. is the 1619 Project, where they basically had concocted a theory in which the entire history of the United States is based on slavery. And, you know, as if this was, you know, <laughs> I mean, like, as, as if this was some Caribbean country where, you know, five white people enslaved the million black people and, and exploited them till they dropped dead. Yes, we had slavery. It was a horrible thing. It was, and, and you know, 600,000 Americans died to, you know, in, in the struggle to get rid of it. But, but the reality is that American history, like all histories, you know, it would be like saying, you know, the, the, the history of, of the United Kingdom is only, you know, what the, you know, the, British, you know, the British East, East India Company. And that's the only thing that ever happened, the only thing of value. History is full of nuance. And, yes, you know, the slavery existed in this country, and, there, you know, it took and we, the treatment of the Native Americans like the Aborigines in, in, in Australia was, was, was horrific. Um, so these are, you know, but but there's also all these great things, all these millions and millions of people, predominantly from Europe, but increasingly from other parts of the world, whose lives have been infinitely improved by moving to America, including my own family coming, you know, from Russia. Uh, you know, if we had stayed in Russia, we'd all be dead. I mean, that's just, you know, that's just the bottom line. I mean, um, so I think that <clears throat> what we're, what you know, what we're missing is, that yes, for all these terrible things, we have these wonderful things. You know, Martin Luther King or Frederick Douglass, didn't, you know, they didn't denounce the core ideas of America. Um, they just said America should live up to its ideas. Um, that that is no longer belief, the belief system of our intelligentsia. I mean, they really think this is a horrific country. I mean, I just am amazed. To hear, you know, you know, progressives are, on the one hand attacking America as racist, but defending China, which puts it, it its Muslim population in concentration camps. You just you sit there mm. and you say, well, how how does that work? You can sort of understand um, 
the lack of protests about what's happening in China in the US and the prioritizing of Black Lives Matter protests. But over here, it makes even less sense, or it makes no sense at all, because why protest about um, racism in another country, America, and not protest about the racism which is on a far larger scale in China? Um, One thing that baffles me as an outsider is when you look at the progress that has been made um, in terms of eliminating racism in America um, over the past uh, 60, 70 years, uh, with the passing of various civil rights acts, um, uh, the national effort to eliminate racial discrimination in the criminal justice system since the Watts riots, since the LA riots, um, the uh, teaching in schools and universities about the evils of racism. And if you look at indexes of racism, such as, um, you know, whether people would object to a member of their family marrying someone of a different race or someone of a different race moving in next door, racial intolerance is declining, um, uh, uh, interracial marriage has never been higher, Um, racial discrimination in the labor market, in the housing market has never been lower. I mean, no one would claim for a second that it that that, you know, it isn't a problem and, and that there isn't still racism in America. But what's baffling is that as racism has declined, as this national effort to tackle America's original sin has been undertaken and has been largely successful, why has anti-racism only grown as a kind of religious force in the kind of... Uh, in American society. I mean, why are people much more sensitive? Why are people so enraged now about racism when even though there is still racism in America, there's never been less racism than there is now? It's just sort of slightly baffling. Well, it is. And, and, you know, I mean, I I see this with people saying to me, well, single family homes are racist because, yes, 40 years ago or 50 years ago when they built Levittown and places like that, there were there, there was uh, attempts to in many cases to restrict African Americans and by the way other groups like Jews from going into these commu- some of these communities, um, not necessarily Levittown but some of the other ones. But the bottom line is now African Americans have dispersed into the suburbs. There are many African American homeowners. Latino and Asian homeownership has has gone up tremendously. Um, and the, uh, the interracial marriage um, issue and the, and the tolerance of interracial marriage, interracial dating, the, um, is, is really quite astounding. I think, you know, I always feel that if, if we put a time capsule um, of today and what race relations were in the United States today, how, how much the role that African Americans, Latinos, and Asians play in our society compared to what was the case 40, 50 years ago, I think, you know, somebody, if you had that time capsule and you show, and, and then you, you, you blasted it back to 1965, people would be astounded. I mean, I'm old enough to remember driving down to Virginia with my parents to go to Williamsburg and seeing colored-only hotels. I had, I'd never seen it before because we didn't have that in New York. So, so, you know, 
we have made enormous progress, particularly, by the way, in the south, southern United States. The southern United States is actually, um, in the studies that we've done at the Urban Reform Institute, actually have done better in in the south than they've done in the north. Actually, the cities like like New York and, and Boston and San Francisco are actually most unequal by race of any cities in the country. So, you know, the, the but the, every, see, what I think tends to happen is the race, the sort of racial dialogue we have now is not talking about e- e- economics as much as it's talking about attitudes and culture, because, you know, frankly, the gentry left is perfectly happy with a hierarchical situation as long as everybody says the right thing. You know, one, one of the um, things I've noticed when discussing this issue with people and pointing to these various metrics by which America and other countries have become less racist over the past 50, 60, 70 years, is that they will, they will rather than engage on that territory, they'll say, well, yeah, but look at the history. Historically, you know, um, people of color have been victims of terrible injustice. Um, And well, yeah, of course. But um, if 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 nothing you can do, if there if there is no way to make amends, if we can't um, eliminate that injustice in contemporary society or do the best we can to do that, if that doesn't make any difference, if the stain of the historical record is always going to essentially corrupt and contaminate the present, then there's nothing we can do. I mean, you can never well, escape that know, history. Well, it's part of, you know, it's, it's, you know, again, I would make this point to vis-a-vis neo-feudalism. It, it has become a original sin that cannot be ever mm. erased. Human beings in the Middle Ages were considered to be Evil, well, in many ways, both on the race issues and there are some other, you know, issues like climate. Humans are seen as as the primary, you know, problem, um, and there is not this idea that you can actually work your way towards a better uh, solution. So it's it's you know it, it you know and it, and it's a sort of a hopeless standard because you know the real progress, frankly, is being made in people's friendships, who they go to school with, who they date, what plays they go to, who, you know, what books do they read, what movies do they watch, what TV shows do they watch, what um, these, these, you know, these other more subtle, what my friend Sergio Munoz calls the multiculturalism of the streets. You know, the actual, you know, go into a pub and you'll see, you know, the, the, you know the Indian guy having having you know having drinks with the guy whose family's from from the West Indies with somebody whose family's been in England for two thousand years. I mean, in other words, there is this is what is great in America and and other countries too, but particularly here in America, this this melding of of various races and 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 people of different backgrounds happens every day. And, and as you point out, we're doing the most intimate thing. We're marrying people from these other from these other racial groups. We're um, we're 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 having you know day to day you know contrast and, and conflict and you know that 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 we see you know being promoted in the media and academia. And yet there's this whole other side of it 
of people who, you know, if I think of my daughter's friends um, at her school, which is a charter school here in Orange County, California, they're incredibly diverse. They're Asian, they're African American, they're Hispanic, they're, you know, they're from all these different countries. That wasn't something that, that was common when I was growing up. So we've made enormous progress. And, and the more that we get fixed on this, America is the horrible, racist country that can never be uh, helped except if we, you know, we establish a, you know, a progressive dictatorship over everything. Um, you know, I think we really, we really, you know, sort of missing the boat and missing the good parts of the story. Mm. I, missing the good parts of the story, that's for sure. I, I one of when I've lived the pe- periods of time I've spent in America, often I would, you know, um, try and provoke my American hosts um, by kind of making jokes about, you know. Um, uh, the lack of sophistication of uh, some of my so, so, some aspects of American society compared to you know London, um, and, and right. sort of te- tease Americans about um, about how you know New York was a sort of road company version of Europe or whatever, uh, and and they would always rise, always rise to the bait, and always become really quick to anger, um, and and um, and and it was almost as if the sensitivity could only be explained. Um, if you kind of bore in mind, it was as almost as if the War of Independence had been fought a couple of weeks before, and those wounds were still raw. And if you poked them, you were going to get bitten. And, and now it's as though the Civil War, you know, hasn't even taken place. It's as though that's been erased from the historical right. memory. And you still live in a society riddled from top to bottom with the most horrific forms of racism. Um, uh, it's extraordinary the 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 inability to see uh, all the good things that have happened. But anyway, let, let, let's let's just um, talk about covering the um, LA riots in '92. How did that How did that happen? Who were you working for at the time? Well, I was um, let's see, 1992. Well, I was uh, you know I was writing. I was writing books. So, but I I wrote for the LA Times. I, I the, the day. The weekend after the riots, Mike Davis and I sort of faced off on on uh, on what the riots meant, and um, you know, so I, it w- it was really very much a. Uh, um, so you weren't covering it as a sort of beat reporter on the street. You were kind of uh, you were debating it with Mike Davis in the kind of op-ed col- on the comment pages. But I, I, I mean, I actually, you know, went out on the streets, and also I was teaching in a place called Culver City. Uh, Culver City is a, um, it's a middle class area, but it's adjacent to South LA, um, and so I saw it because we had to, we had to uh, suspend class, and I remember getting out of the car, and there were these kids in in cars throwing rocks at us. And then driving along the Power Five freeway and looking to the east and seeing fires—that was pretty, <laughs> pretty intense. Um, and um, and living in a state of you know really concern and uh, um, you know, of course in the LA riots were much greater than what's happened now um, you know, in terms of their scale and how many people were killed and all that sort of thing, um, but. But I, it, it was it was a very, it, you know, it, what what I came away with, and then I did the investigations, so we did lots of interviews. 
is what we came away with is the idea that one of the reasons we had such terrible riots is that this came right on the heels of the big aerospace drop. Um, you know, the Cold War dividend was very tough on Southern California. And to our own surprise, we found out that many African Americans worked in the defense industry and had lost their jobs. And this is what's happened now with the pandemic. The pandemic wiped out large parts of the minor- minority middle class, um, and uh, and that creates a very good environment for for riots. I mean, what the way you can you know you the people who would normally have restrained things were no longer there. And I think we you know that I think that's that's part of that's part of the problem now. Um, and and so you know it was it was a very searing experience. I'll never forget it. You know I I guess I'm glad from a historical point of view that, that I saw it, but it was very very it was a very bad uh, thing to to watch. It was you know it was cruel and it was you know the beating of the the truck driver who was dragged out of his. Uh, drug out of his out of his truck and beaten up on the streets for having nothing to do with anything you know just like these poor cops who get shot in st louis what what did they do uh, what, what, at the time uh were you filled with despair about the future of america and america's cities in particular uh, and and um uh, were you subsequently pleasantly surprised when you know things seemed to recover there weren't any major disturbances on that scale uh, for what 28 years um and does that suggest that that even though the temptation on seeing the rioting that even though the temptation is to succumb to despair and pessimism uh in fact this is probably um uh, uh just an aberration and um uh, things will probably recover and we'll be okay and nothing like this will happen again for another 25 30 years um i wish i felt that that was the case i, I think that the potential the potential is really not so much that there'll be you know that there'll be another incident like this that what worries me is how deeply what the my friend fred siegel calls the the riot ideology has now become so embedded in academia and the media in the um in 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 certain urban uh politics um that that i think that may be hard to restrain what may the good news may be that as people disperse and they move to the suburbs and they move to smaller cities and they move to places where the american culture has not yet been completely destroyed um, maybe there will be some gradual change. Um, in other words, what I propose, that, and, and I've written about this, um, which is that maybe we'll find a new center in America, which will not be either reactionary, small-town, rural, you know, sort of Trumpistas, and it won't be, you know, Bill de Blasio, you know, sort of bastardized Marxist. It will be something else, something that responds to what people actually care about um and i and that would be my hope that we would we would be able to do that and by the way i think a lot of that happened 
in the year, you know, after 1992, for instance, here in Los Angeles, the black population actually was declined considerably. Uh, most of South LA is now Hispanic, um, and but many African Americans they moved to Phoenix, they moved to Las Vegas, they moved to Texas, they moved. If they had family in the South, very often they moved back to the South, and they actually, in many cases, did much better. And so, you know, I'm, what I'm hoping is that as people begin to move and change um, in their own lives, um, they they will sort of um, begin to uh, sort of discover that actually this isn't such a bad country to be in. I mean, it's look, it's a very difficult thing if you're an, an, a a a you know, racial minority gone to poor schools where there are very few good-paying jobs around. It's very hard to be optimistic about the future. I I think that if people begin to say, well, you know, there are other places for me to go. There are other things I can do. I can I can move somewhere else. I can go to a different part of the country. Hopefully that will change things over time. I think we're going to have a very difficult transition in the next 10 years in this country um, going from this this bifurcation between this this hard left inner city kind of world, which is incredibly um, uh, economically unequal, and a more um, uh, egalitarian, more dispersed, more property ownership um, kind of paradigm, which I think we we really enjoyed some of that during both the Clinton and Bush years. Um, and I'm hoping that we'll we'll get back to that. And I think that's one of the reasons why we didn't have the kind of disturbances we had. As long as people have an option that they know they can make their lives better or their children's lives better, there's always hope. That's what America is about. America is really about the 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 aspiration to move into a, a higher status of class. If you're you know, if you're working class, you want to be middle class. If you're middle class, you want to be upper class. If you're upper class, you want to be a billionaire. That's what America is about. America is about aspiration. And when we lose aspiration, then we become just a a big crappy version of Europe, um, and and prop, without the sophistication and the good food. You know, I always thought the food was a lot better in New York than uh, most European cities. But listen, Joel, it's been great to talk to you. Well, my, uh, my wife's family is from Paris. So. Okay. <laughs> well, can't beat Paris. Uh, but uh, listen, thank you very much for talking to Quillette and um, looking forward to seeing your next contribution. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to quillette.com where you will find more content.